0: Hey everybody, uh, Pastor Kale here, coming to you from COVID quarantine today, which uh, is no fun. Uh, you might be able to tell my a little bit stuffy today. You may be able to tell by my voice, but otherwise, generally feeling uh, just fine, um, tired kind of easily, that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, excited to sit down a little bit here and talk to you about uh, a book of the Bible that I like an awful lot, uh, so much so that one of my sons named is named after it uh it's the book of ezra that we're looking at today um it's a unique book in a lot of ways and so it's just me today so i'm just going to jump right in uh to the book it's unique in a lot of different ways uh first of all it's unique because it is a a, what we call post-exilic book and there's not a lot of those it's a book that is uh uh written after the exile takes place after the exile and uh, the, the the range of stuff that happens uh, in the book of Ezra probably goes from certainly goes from 539 uh, at the very beginning of the book all the way up to about 440 uh, towards the end of the book, which is uh, I think Ezra we our thought is that Ezra came to Jerusalem around uh, 458 or something like that, and so and his book. We we think was written probably around 440, um, and so it's a unique book in that sense, uh, where uh, the the uh, the Ezra who it's named after is uh, he's a priest, and um, you know we usually think of names named books as being written by prophets and sometimes by kings uh, Solomon of course writing Song of Solomon, uh, but uh, not not often by priests. And uh, so this—that's a unique book in that sense as well. Uh, it's a unique book also because it's one of uh, one of only two books that have major sections in Aramaic in the Old Testament. Uh, Ezra being one, uh, Daniel being the other. Daniel actually has more Aramaic in it, but it's also a, a longer book in the sense of I guess words and chapters really. Um, so uh, the book of Ezra is. Uh, as you read through it, you'll see where the Aramaic switches. is. It's in um, in chapter four, verse eight, and uh, it it actually notes that the le- the letter that is for counting was written in Aramaic, and so it it switches to Aramaic. Uh, now Aramaic uses not that this <laughs> not that you guys are gonna look at a lot of manuscripts, but uh, it uses the same alphabet as Hebrew, so it would be like uh, somebody suddenly on a page uh, switching from Uh, you know, English to, say, Spanish or something like that. And Spanish isn't exactly the same alphabet, but it's largely the same alphabet, um, where you wouldn't really visually be able to see the difference, uh, but you just couldn't understand anything if you were reading it. Um, And so 4 is where it starts. Uh, Six eighteen is where that ends. And so all that section is in Aramaic. You'll notice when you read through it, if you haven't already, that uh, those are letters from the king uh, to uh, some of the opponents of the the temple, the temple reconstruction, which is part of what's going on here in Ezra. Um, it is interesting that this book has has a lot of official documents that are that are copied in the book, which sounds uh, sounds fantastically boring, and you know maybe it is, uh, but. The cool thing, I think, about this whole thing is you you sort of, uh, w- at least in parts of Ezra, get this conversation between the king and other people. And as by means of that conversation, uh, it fills in the story. It fills in what's going on, uh, which is kind of an interesting way to tell the story uh, in the book of Ezra. Um, it's probably also noteworthy that... Uh, it seems like Ezra and Nehemiah were probably originally separate because uh, if, you, if you look at the beginning of Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah begins with uh, kind of a common thing to begin a book, uh, which is the words of Nehemiah, uh, son, of, son of Hakaliah. Uh, and that's kind of normally how you would begin a prophetic oracle or something like that. Uh, but in this case... Um, the the two books got joined somewhere a long time ago so they're joined together in the Hebrew Bible and they're also uh, in the early church um, joined together sometimes the early church fathers just re- refer to them as first and second Ezra and don't even use Nehemiah's name um, but uh, they're, they're they're closely linked books is the point and they they deal with largely the same uh, the same you know, time. They're both post-exilic, of course. Um, and as you read through Ezra, um, but yeah, I hope you enjoy the book. Uh, it's, it's an interesting look into a time that we don't talk about very much in the church. Um, but the, that's a really important time. In fact, it gives us some good background uh, for the New Testament in a number of different ways. And so we'll, we'll hit some highlights and we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, as I was reading through this time, uh, a couple of things jumped out at me. Now, I, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time in uh, in, in the first couple of verses, but the first couple of verses are hugely important. Uh, they're the decree of Cyrus, and uh, excuse me, <coughs> Cyrus. Uh, Cyrus is the king of Persia, and he makes this decree that uh, that people will. Uh, The people should go back and they should uh, rebuild the temple. Now, this is, I don't want to spoil too much uh, for the sermon this weekend, but this is kind of how Cyrus operated. This was Persian policy. This is how they did stuff. Uh, So they they kept um, control of different areas by giving them freedom, basically. They said, go back, worship your God, rebuild your temples, just pay tribute. Um, And and this was a very effective means of of control. In fact, the Persian Persian Empire uh, was, I think, the biggest empire, uh, at least up to that time, that had ever existed. Uh, Alexander comes along in another couple hundred years, Alexander the Great, I think, and he's uh, uh, he, he expands farther. But uh, the Persian Empire is a really big deal. It's the biggest thing they've seen up to that point, probably partially because they had these policies. And it was a good way to keep people kind of under your thumb. Uh, but so uh, chapter one uh, is the decree of Cyrus. And actually, if you flip back... Um, Just to the like if you're if you're reading Ezra, you can flip back, you know, maybe one page, maybe it's even on the same page, depending on what Bible you have. But the end of Second Chronicles, uh, you'll notice has the the decree of Cyrus is how the end of how Second Chronicles ends. And so Ezra kind of picks up right where Second Chronicles leaves off, which uh, explains why we order the uh, the books the way that we do in the English Bible, why we put Ezra here. Uh Hebrew Bible doesn't do that. Uh, but the uh, um, we, we get into the book, and almost immediately then, uh, you, you get into some of these lists. And there are a number of them in the book of Ezra. Uh, they're, they're, they're definitely, you know, probably skimming material, I would say, for those of us who are, are reading in English and don't know who all these people are. Um, but it's a, it's an inventory of the stuff that gets brought back, and in in the book of Daniel especially the uh, uh, the 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 gold pieces that Nebuchadnezzar uh, brought out of uh, out of the temple of God out of Jerusalem uh, that's a big deal that that happened, uh, and so when they're brought back in chapter one again big deal it's God keeping His promises God kind of undoing. Uh, the destruction that happened in the uh, in the exile, which, which God Himself brought about, we find out numerous times throughout the uh, the Old Testament. Um, then it gets into the people in chapter two, and it, it kind of lists uh, all the different families and numbers of people and stuff like that that are, uh, uh, that are that come back from exile. Um, and and it's kind of a long chapter; it's pretty detailed lists. Uh, And and you find out that there's, uh, you know, thousands of people who who come back from Babylon uh, as a result of the decree of Cyrus. Uh, Chapter three, then, is where we really kind of start getting into the story. And uh, three, three is is one verse that really jumped out at me as I read through the book of Ezra. It says this is when the people get back and it says, despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundations and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening sacrifices. And that was, uh, you know, it kind of jumped out to me that one of the things that they do well here is they are kind of unapologetically themselves. They're 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 the church, you know, they're they're God's people, um, even though it's maybe a little bit scary to do that in the context that they find themselves in. Um, chapter three moves on, and then you get to another really big turning point uh, as we move kind of towards, really towards Jesus, towards the New Testament. Because remember, the temple is destroyed when uh, when the exile happens, and the temple exists when Jesus is here. So how does it get back? Well, t- uh, chapter three, verse eight is where it starts, where Zerubbabel, which is a Babylonian name, uh, and you can, you know, kind of tell that by looking at it, uh, Zerubbabel Begins this work, and he, he appoints these these Levites, and they begin rebuilding the house of God. They rebe- begin uh, rebuilding the temple. Um, and the first thing they they do, <laughs> which stands to reason, the first thing they do is kind of they lay the foundation. And uh, you would think that this would be just a joyous occasion in the history of Israel, um, but. As it happens, it's kind of met with mixed reaction, we find out. Chapter 3, verse 12, many of the older priests and the Levites and the families' heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the, the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. So there's, you know, when this foundation gets laid, the, the, the really old people who probably, you know, they would have been kids, uh, one would think, when the, the temple was destroyed cause that was 586 when it was destroyed 539 when they come back so that's what uh, it's just about 50 years or so that they're in Babylon I think um, and you know the time that it takes to, to actually get back and get rebuilding and that sort of stuff I mean they're they're pretty old at this point um, but they weep because you know the glory of Solomon's temple it's it's just not here and in Zerubbabel's temple, um, and so there is a mixed reaction. But they're, they're back, but they're not back to the golden age of Israel by any means that there was under under Solomon and under those who uh, served in Solomon's temple. Um, and then we run into like it's all for the most part going real well, but we run into opposition in four verse two. And here's one of the things that really sets up the New Testament. Um, you have these people. Uh, the surrounding people, they call them, uh, coming to Zerubbabel, and saying, "Let's. We'd like to help you build the temple because we seek your God too, and we've been sacrificing to him for for a long time since the king of Assyria uh, brought us here. So that these are these are the people. If you remember, way back in, uh, well, you probably don't remember 722 BC, but if you remember, uh, the Northern Kingdom is destroyed." In 722, that's the fall of Samaria, and, and when that falls, what the Assyrians do is uh, not only they, they siege and take over uh, Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom, but they, they bring people in from all different lands to kind of intermarry with the Samaritans and therefore uh, destroy the culture by uh, through intermarriage. That was kind of their strategy, just like Cyrus's is, go back and build your temple. The Assyrians' was let's destroy cultural identity by, by having these people all intermarried. Um, so when they come, what, what they're talking about is centuries ago, uh, the, uh, the Assyrian king... <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Sorry if that was loud. Um, <coughs> centuries ago, the Assyrian king brought them in and had them intermarry, and from that time they've been worship, worshiping Yahweh as the local deity, the local god. Uh, but um, they haven't—they haven't had him. They—they uh, they, they don't worship him as the only god. So uh, you know, it's—it's—you it, it, don't pick that up necessarily reading through the text quickly. You're kind of like, well, why won't they let these guys help? But that's why is uh, yes, they worship Yahweh, but. They also worship all these other deities uh, that come from their Assyrian roots, and so that's why Zerubbabel said, uh, "You have no part with us. Thanks, but no thanks. We tried that already, uh, and look where it got us. It got it exiled to Babylon. Um, which is a good decision, uh, but it also creates a bunch of problems. So the letters start uh, back and forth between um, these opposing actions, uh, in chapter four, verse eight. And basically, uh, this, this letter goes to Artaxerxes, uh, saying, Hey, these guys are going to rebuild this, this city. And I mean, look back in your history records, the city's trouble. It's a, it's a rebellious city and a city that causes, has called, caused all kinds of problems. So Artaxerxes writes back and he says, yep, you're right. Um, hold off construction until we, uh, uh, until we get there. So there's a stall. Um, and, uh, and, and things kind of, kind of come to a standstill as we find at the end of chapter four until, um, until this, this, uh, King Darius of Persia, uh, comes to, uh, comes to power in, in about, it looks, it's about 520 at least, uh, from the, uh, um, from the notes in, in, why in my study bible. Uh it's about 520 when that happens. So we're there there's there's probably a couple of years hiatus here. And remember, you know, it's not emails, right? It takes a while for letters to go back and forth. Um but eventually once you get uh once you get through all this, the the um the uh Tatanai and the other people who are in opposition or and who are coming to Jerusalem and saying, hey, who are you guys, and what are you doing rebuilding this temple? Uh, we have Haggai, by the way, mentioned at the beginning of chapter five. Uh, so they get back to work rebuilding the temple, and uh, uh, Tatanai and these other guys uh, come and question them, and then send a letter to uh, King Darius. Uh, now, really interesting in chapter five, I think, is they, they kind of recount what happens when they when they come and confront these guys, and uh, and if you notice, uh, inside the letter is the answer that they're given by uh, by the by the guys who are rebuilding the temple, and they use it they use it as an opportunity to tell the story of what ha- what has happened to Israel. I mean, they, they use it as an opportunity to to bear witness uh, to God and who He is. But then they also get around to the you know telling the truth that Cyrus said, uh, "Go do this," and it's a it's a decree from the king. Um, And so the, the opponents basically say, uh, go check, make sure Cyrus actually really said this, King Darius. And then in chapter six, we get King Darius saying, yep, uh, it's there. And then, so he, he issues this decree, uh, to continue the rebuilding. And that takes us, uh, essentially to the end of the Aramaic chapter, um, and the, uh, the, uh, end of chapter six we we finish with with a passover celebration which is significant you know because it remember the passover was the mark of the uh the exodus it was the the meal that that the people ate to remind them that god brought them out of egypt uh and so here they are having just been brought out of babylon eating the same meal um and so then, ultimately, uh, chapter 7 begins, and we're already seven chapters into a 10-chapter book, and we haven't met Ezra yet, uh, which, is, which is kind of an interesting point. But his first mention is chapter 7, verse 1. Um, and he comes then to, uh, 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 to Jerusalem, and... Um, oh, excuse me. Uh, he comes to Jerusalem... And uh, uh, it's it, you, one thing you notice when when you Ezra is introduced is how often, or, or one thing I would suggest that you you note uh, in Ezra, Ezra's introduction is how often the law of Moses or the Torah of Moses is mentioned. Uh, in chapter seven, um, the, uh, the the the. Kind of one through ten is the introduction of who Ezra is, and, and very often the law of Moses or the Torah of Moses, the teachings, the Pentateuch, uh, are mentioned. And Ezra is a guy who knows them and knows them very well. Uh, so, the the next thing I think to point out maybe is uh, you you've got uh you, you've got these you've got some communication between Ezra and Artaxerxes in the rest of chapter seven. You've got a list of descendants. Uh, and then you've got this uh, uh, kind of Ezra himself in first person recounting the return to Jerusalem in uh, toward the end of chapter 8, uh, after a whole bunch of, another list of a lot of names. Uh, but interestingly, chapter 9 is where we kind of get to the meat of things. And what Ezra finds out uh, when he gets back is uh, that it it's, it, things aren't great because the people haven't listened to God. Surprise, surprise. Now, those of us who have been reading since Genesis uh, know that this is not, um, we shouldn't be too surprised about this. But uh, what what happens is there, there's been this intermarriage with the people around them. Uh, and so these, these families have come up and essentially the Israelites have chosen what the Assyrians forced on on the Northern Kingdom. In other words, they've, they've, uh, integrated with with uh, with people of of uh, you know Canaanite religion and uh, people who serve other gods and uh, b- because of that the uh, the the identity of the Israelites the uh, the identity of God's people um, is in danger. Now it, it's it should be noted that we're talking about religious identity here, right? That we're talking about the 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 monotheistic worship of Yahweh. That's the thing that's in danger. And also note that this is a crucial point in, in salvation history. You know, we're doing a lot of setting up of the New Testament here. We've got the Samaritans who are, uh, uh, we're finding out why the Samaritans are such a a problem and why there's so much conflict when Jesus goes into Samaria. We're finding out how the temple gets rebuilt um, and, and we're, we're really setting the stage for the, the last things that are going to happen before, uh, uh, before Jesus comes. Um, and so it's, it's, it's a crucial time in the history of salvation right now. So the, the situation is troubling because uh, Israel is small and um, it needs to reestablish itself uh, in the Holy Land, and so when Ezra comes along, he deals with the situation uh, in in a couple of ways. The first one is is very exemplary for us. It is uh, um, it, it's confession, and it's uh, it's it's very poignant confession too. He uh, he goes through all the grace that God has showered on them, and then all the the you know the ways that they've sort of turned their back on on God. Uh, and then verse ten comes down to the practical side. So, so Ezra as a leader, this is interesting. Uh, he just does this. He makes confession. He doesn't ask the people to do anything until the people come to him, and, and this is the beginning of chapter ten, and say, you know what, you're right. Uh, we've really messed up here. Um, help us fix it. And so that's what chapter ten is about. It's about the uh, uh, how they how they deal with the problem. Um, uh, chapter ten is a is an interesting one to read too because it, uh, it you know Ezra says separate yourself from these people in chapter ten verse uh, eleven uh, and and you kind of think to yourself w- when you see that verse and when you see that that's the solution you go wait a minute what you know why are you telling them to do that They're, these are families well a couple things to note first of all. Um, notice that the chapter begins and ends by including children, right? And what that probably tells us is that the author is not unaware of the 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 cost, the the hardship that this creates, um, separating separating families like this. It, the, the author is not unaware of that, um, and uh, uh, but you know there, there's other things that that probably make our ears perk up a little bit um, as far as, I mean, he's essentially telling these people to divorce. Well, there's a couple things I think we need to keep in mind. First of all, again, remember, this is a, a, a key point in the preservation of Israel, the preservation of God's people. And there is, a, uh, you know, there's a lot on the line here as we lead up to Jesus. Second of all, uh, I think it's important that we remember that uh, this, is a, this is a problem that's caused by the sin of the people. It's caused because uh, the people didn't do what they were supposed to do. Uh, and and it's an imperfect solution to a problem that's brought about by people's sin. Um, for us today, we need to remember a few things. First of all, um, marriage between God's people should always be that. Christian marriage between Christians is a good and important thing. Um, but the other side of that is divorce is never, ever the will of God. Um, and that takes us back to this is an imperfect situation and an imperfect solution to a problem that's brought on by the sin of the people at a very pivotal time in salvation history where the grace of God is really in view and is going to be borne witness to for for generations. You know, we're reading it now, right? So it's it's kind of a troubling chapter for us in a lot of ways, but we have to take it in context and realize that uh, this is not something that's commanded for us uh, for all time. So that takes us basically through the book of Ezra. Um, And so five things maybe to take away from the book of Ezra as you read it. First of all, uh, salvation comes from God. That's an important beginning. You know, Ezra, the book of Ezra exists because God brought his people back from exile. So that's kind of the underlying foundation of this book. Second of all doing what's right matters. And we see that a couple times in the book of Ezra. We see that uh, when Ezra comes back to Jerusalem. We see that when the people come back and start rebuilding the temple, uh, that doing what's right is, you know, it makes a difference. It matters. Third of all, uh, the names and the genealogies are annoying, uh, and they're long, and they're easy to skip. I skipped some of them. You probably will too. But they remind us that this is a real thing that happened. These are real people that came back from Babylon, real people that God brought back and established in Jerusalem. Fourth then, uh, and this is a a really big one in the book of Ezra, and we see it probably better here than anywhere else, that's God works through secular authorities. So he works through Cyrus, he works through Darius, he works through Xerxes and Artaxerxes um, throughout the book of Ezra. It's really a lot about God working through secular authorities. And then finally... Uh, sin brings about imperfect situations. It just does. There's consequences, and we see that at the end uh, with the intermarriage stuff that's happening. Um, But we do have a God who works in it all. So thanks. Uh, I hope you enjoy the book of Ezra, and we'll see you in church this weekend.